listening to Business Banter Podcast live from wherever Conrad's Yerba Mate addiction takes us to. The only show with truly unfiltered behind-the-scenes business talk. You're here, my dear listener, as an entrepreneur who's craving knowledge and advice. But whichever way you go, you either fall asleep or your bullshit detector goes off. Besides raw business talk and interviews with experts, you can expect us to spice things up a bit and throw in a touch of banter into the podcasting blunder. Real everyman's talk on topics ranging from China taking over the world to how can I replace coffee in my diet? You probably know the answer to that one. Be warned, no political correctness in this house. Enjoy the ride. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm with my co-host, Conrad Yerba Mate, addict Chihava, and my co-host Matt Jaworski Laker. And today is the second episode of our podcast. Last week we talked about mental models, and uh, I actually really enjoyed having this podcast with Conrad, and I hope Conrad enjoyed it likewise. And therefore, <laughs> we are recording the next episode of the podcast. We had a lot of interesting talks, and. Um, I recommend you watching this on double speed. You can do that. Uh, some people messaged me about this and some people also commented about this. I think that they really enjoyed the episode and that they listened to it on uh, double speed. So uh, they would be actually able to watch the whole thing before falling asleep uh, for their last you know, hour before, before bed. Uh, and we're going to talk about not only mental models today, but also... Uh, Connor is reading uh, this one book that I'm trying to get my hands on. And this book is called um, The Ultimate Blueprint for Insanely Successful Business by none other than Keith J. Cunningham. Right. The guy with my favorite last name. I, I really find this last name amusing, to be honest. But what, what anyway, makes it so funny? What makes it funny? It's because it contains words cunning and ham and it's like the ham that is cunning uh like a cunning ham that is cunning like a fox and is like you know just like um you know waiting there for you uh to 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 you know attack your i don't know like it just sounds funny if i ever um, interview him i will i will you know let him know that this is something that stood out to us the most <laughs> <laughs> from his book yes. um anyway so the um, the book is hard to get. I, it's hard for me to get my hands on the book because this book is not on uh, Amazon Audible. Uh, it's not on Scribd or whatever, however you pronounce it, uh, Scribd as you call it. Um, so, can you can you make some quick brief intro before we get to mental models about who uh, Keith Cunningham uh, is? Okay, so um, so I guess that the main, the first thing I would start with about him is that he has a second book that is more famous that some people might know, which is Road Less Stupid, um, which I would basically call a Bible of, you know, small business, like if you want to run it, start it, or you already have one. Um, and this one, and that one is a lot broader and a lot also thicker so it has a lot more pages and a lot more information this one is is a lot shorter but it's also 
super actionable. It's just more um, kind of geared towards like finances specifically and profit and, and measuring. Um, and as far as Keith Cunningham, I think the best would be if I just read his bio from the book, because then I will just, we will not, you know, have a guesswork and my own words. I would just read like, what's the, what are the facts? So Keith J. Cunningham, American entrepreneur, international speaker, and an acclaimed author is regarded as one of the foremost authorities on business mastery with more than 45 years of uh, business and investing experience. Um, you know, Keith has taught critical business skills to thousands of top executives. Uh, he has created, the, in Keith's business school, he has created curriculum designed to accelerate your, your learning. Um, and the, the ultimate blueprint for insanely successful business reveals Keith's core business principles, including why great operators get tired and how great business owners get rich. Keith is also the author of Keys to the Vault, Lessons from the Pros on uh, Raising Money and Igniting Your Business. And he lives in Austin, Texas. Um, but basically, in my own words and knowing him, I would say that he just uh, is a guy which that bio doesn't says who, that's why I really believe and I know his stuff is real, is that he's a guy who's had you know dozens of businesses that he's vested in and he managed and at some point i think like 20 or so years ago he lost everything even though he was a millionaire and he just lost everything by making stupid decisions and then because he kind of reverse engineered how he got to this and then he applied it again once he lost it he was able to get back on top and become like a millionaire and manage, you know, who is managing multiple businesses again, which in my opinion is usually kind of a really good proof that someone knows what he's talking about rather than luck. Because, because they could get lucky once, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but there's quite a lot of people that get lucky because that's how capitalism works. Like on one hand it's skill, but also luck. That's the only way it can work. Um, so so seeing him that he's why 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 that's the only way it can work i think as some far as i'm aware I, yeah we talked I, about this but I'm, I'm thinking that some people might question this now what what why the only way capitalism can work is because of luck and i think you had great explanation the other day well i i'm thinking if i had I, I mean my really simple one is that if we like that's the only way to really make sure that it's thriving to the maximum percent because if you don't reward the people who get lucky then then the progress wouldn't be as fast because you know some people get there by luck some people get there through like logic and skill but in the end it's it's all about just getting there not how you got there um because that's how like the machine like the progress machine works. It's like, you know, both, I, I don't know if it's the best explanation. I'm kind of lacking good words, but maybe you have better. But for me, that's kind of how I understand it. It's just like, if we punished luck, then the innovation wouldn't go as fast and, and you, know, the, the capit you know, the machine wouldn't go as fast because that's just, there's like two ways to get there. So then we would just kind of kill one side of it and it just wouldn't work. But I don't know, I can't go more in depth into it because I guess I just don't understand it enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. So can you, can you give some, um, you know, briefing on, on this book on the ultimate 
for blueprint for 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 um for successful business book um i'm really curious about what this book is actually about well i i mean like my, my thoughts would be that the best way to go about like kind of reviewing this book would be also through the lens of um the other book that which you really like which is the emf revisited because i would mm -hmm. say emf revisited or emf um by michael gerber i think right is is mm -hmm. kind of similar to what um what keith preaches i would say emf is less actionable but it has the same kind of core principles that i think the emf says also is talks a lot about like the operators you know get tired and most small businesses are started by really good operators, but then they are not good business owners. And he, Which in EMF they are called, I think, technicians. Oh yeah, great. Um, yeah, they are technicians just, here. Just are for operators. terminology there. Mm -hmm. um, so so yeah, like the 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 big thing of um, of this book, like the two phrases that are really stuck with me, which is like, yeah, great operators get tired, great business owners get rich, and then the trend is your friend. Um, so <laughs> he's, uh, he's, you know, basically the whole book is about what makes a business, like what's at the core of, of business when it comes to finances, like how does it all work? Like that there are, you know, there are assets and, and there are, you know, um, like he, he shows you how to look at like balance sheets. Uh, what what's the most important, which is like cash flow, uh, how to look like, how to calculate in a business, like how to calculate all those, like when you get a financial statement from your from your accountant that he's talking about at first, he outlines that like, you know, big, big part of business owners, like small business owners don't don't know how to look at the financial statements. So all they ever look is like how much profit or revenue you have. Uh, at the end of the month but that doesn't give you any optics and because it doesn't give you any like kind of insights it doesn't paint the whole picture you 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 have no way to really um do anything about it and i guess also one of the big phrases he says is that think of revenue and sales as offense and that's his big thing in both of the books that he's kind of as really Think of revenue and sales as what? As offense, like offense in business or like in sports. Oh, it's like have, offense in sports. Yeah, mm -hmm. like in, in, in any sport, you have offense and defense. So mm -hmm. I would say that the big theme, the biggest theme in both Keith's books is, is, is the like kind of the emphasis on defense. And that's why I like it because almost everywhere you read and listen or hear or YouTube or whatever content you consume now, everyone is talking about, you know, uh, the offense, which is like growth, you know, Oops. more sales, more revenue, more customers, more employees, like mm -hmm. everything more. But he is going almost at everything from the second angle, which is like, how can you build a world-class defense? And I would say it's especially important now that we just had like a, a quite a big crisis recently, which is still kind of prevailing. And in times like this, this is what's really important because that's when most small businesses die and his kind of big thing is that the reason is because they never took care of their defense which is uh, business optics and measuring is defense for mm -hmm. him um, mm -hmm. and so what is business optics so business optics are basically um, 
you know, all the like balance sheets, income statements, um, you know, revenue, assets, like everything that that's, uh, it could be measured. I'm looking at through all my notes. Yeah, cash flow statements, income statements, um, and then being able to um, to analyze the data. So, so for example, you know, using some various techniques he has, like you know, dividing some things and applying percentages to it, so that you don't look at just the raw number, but you look at it in a way that's like more, um, you know, more 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 descriptive in a sense. Like you are able to make conclusions out of it. Um, I don't know if mm -hmm. that makes sense. And then those three points that you talked about. So the third one was trend is your friend. And what were the other two? Um, you mean like the sayings? No, you, you, at the beginning you said that there are three key things that the book is about. And you said the third one is that trend is your friend. And then you mentioned two, two other ones. Um, well, I guess I said that trend is your friend is like the, the, the big thing he says, because trend is your friend. He refers to the fact that the way you make use of the, all the data in your business or the like financial statements is you have to look at the trend. Like you don't look at it as just like, what are the, you know, what are the statements for this month? Because it doesn't give you any insights. What gives you insights is when you look at it over time. How is it compared to last month? How is it compared to last three months? How is it compared to the same time last year? How is it compared to, you know, how is it, how is, has it changed in the past year? So that's basically what he's talking about when it comes to trend. Um, mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. Like um, when you think about math, statistics and, and kind of business, like the way it makes sense to, to compare data is when you have something to compare it to you just look at it doesn't doesn't you know mean anything um mm -hmm. and yeah the, the bigger the second saying was great operators get tired great business owners get rich um mm -hmm. but i think what i would say is that the second big thing that i you know now kind of read because i mean i haven't finished the book but i'm like in more than halfway through is that he's big on on for example but you have two paths, for example, for, for, you know, growing your profit, you have the same two businesses and you can either, for example, it gives the example, you can either take strategy a, which is, let's say, um, grow your sales by 25% and it's gonna, let's say, increase your profits by whatever, 10%. Um, or you can reduce your expenses by like 10 percent and that's gonna also do so he he for example gave really good example of two identical businesses and with the goal of hey i want to you know increase my profits by i don't know 30 percent and that business you know the strategy a would be to just increase uh you know go for more revenue and then more profit as such and the other one would be to reduce expenses and his big theme and that's just across two books is that the lot wiser approach is to go to the route B than A. A is where most people go. The problem with that route is that it's a lot harder and more unpredictable to try to increase revenue. In most businesses, to increase revenue by like 25% is, is a really huge task. 
it involves mm -hmm. a lot of effort, you know, you know, <laughs> she was giving like a lot of examples of like posting five times a day on Twitter, on LinkedIn, do this, you know, marketing, increasing your marketing, doing all that just to just increase that. But on the other hand, you can, he says, and it, that would also take a lot of time, probably like a few months at least, if not half a year. And he said that in his experience in nine out of 10 businesses, he's able to reduce the expenses in, in by like 10% in 60 days, which equals basically doubling the profit in most businesses. And he's, mm -hmm. he, and he's a lot on like, you know, don't buy those fancy chairs, don't buy, don't buy stuff that you don't need for business and don't call it that this is just a cost of doing business because it's not. Um, and that, you know, fancy cars and all that stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't make you rich. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess you could, maybe you can give some more beyond your thoughts on like, you know, because you, I think you have a lot to say in that matter. Um, maybe we can point the direction to something specific, but I think you have a lot to say because you are basically teaching people how to start business. You've been running different businesses for quite a uh, long time and you started them from scratch. And then again, you know, like you converted in something like, uh, you know, you created machines. Um, so I think, it would be, and you're also a fan of like EMIF. So it'd be interesting to for sure hear about your thoughts on the matter of, um, for sure measuring would be a big thing, like, like optics, why, for example, measuring KPIs, critical drivers, things like that are important. Um, and, um, you know, and why maybe, and start the conversation, like why you think it's true, if you think it's true that, you know, technicians or operators, great technicians operated get tired and and uh great business owners get rich <laughs> um okay so i don't understand yet this book uh but from i mean from emeth uh we can learn that uh, the business needs to be a system that works like a machine and um it needs to work as good and the processes needs to be as properly deployed and organized as if you were to copy paste your company as a franchise so that you could just get people and train them, show them exactly how to replicate every single process in your company through your um, SOPs, which stand for standardized operating procedures, manuals, um, through, you know, materials explaining them how to do things and um, basically this allows you to create a predictable system where every customer is treated in the same way not that um, you know one one time you come to a restaurant and so this is my personal story I went to a uh, restaurant and um, I really love burgers and uh, it's the first time that anybody ever served me something like this. It was this brioche bun of a burger that was purple. The color was purple. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's just, you know, purple bun. I mean, it's probably not as, it's probably like some, you know, chem some way of chemically coloring it or whatever, obviously. But I was somehow amazed, like the aesthetics of the whole meal were 
really amazing and i was i was like wow awesome colors this bone was just so delicious it was was crunchy on the outside soft um and buttery in the inside so it was absolutely insane um and uh, the next day i came over again to this restaurant and uh, they served me um they served me burger on a regular bun and and i made a whole big drama about this and um i mean it wasn't a drama i just you know, told them that i was expecting a purple bun which you know when i think about this in the re <laughs> retrospection i think it's kind of weird that a 27 year old dude who runs a business comes into a restaurant and he's you know like not accepting that they gave him wrong color of a bun because he wants a purple one. But then I thought about this in a different way. As a customer, you have a certain expectation that the company, you have certain expectation towards the business that you work with. And the company makes an implied promise uh anytime that they serve you that the next time they will serve the same thing they don't tell you that they will serve you the same thing but if you go to mcdonald's and buy a cheeseburger anywhere in the world there is an implied promise that this is going to be the exact same cheeseburger so if you go to some let's say other country with with some foreign cuisine that you particularly don't enjoy and you go to mcdonald's you know you're going to have your beef burger with cheese and you know what it's going to taste like and it's not going to be really good burger but it's going to be always the same mm. it's not going to be the healthiest burger but it's going to be always the same so this implied promise and mcdonald's being able to stand up to this promise is um is amazing and this is the trust that brand can develop and uh, in the same way we can't create companies that uh, treat customers in a different way. You know, one time you come to a hairdresser and they offer you a coffee and there was a story from Emeth. And then the other day the guy comes and he offers him, him a wine or something like that. So he, he was, he was, you know, making this whole story about that. I mean, it's fine. Like I got something better than a coffee. I mean, wine is always better than coffee. Uh, but, um, depends who you ask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, it wasn't what I expected. It was kind of, you know, the bad taste uh, after this experience because they, they just treat customers by random, you know, like the owner has a good mood and he offers wine. The other day, the owner doesn't have a good mood and offers something else. Um, so business is art, but it's art of making a replicable machine. It's not art of um treating your customers in a different way every time depends on your mood because this uh, destroys the trust. And um, really we need to fight for the trust um, to get it from our customers. Same way um, most of the businesses actually work. They work because of the trust. So if there was no trust, you would not get into a um, cab with a taxi driver because you wouldn't trust mm. them that they're not gonna you know, kill themselves and yourself. Uh, if there wasn't trust involved, you wouldn't go to a restaurant because you would not trust them that they're not going to poison you. So this this mutual trust between people is necessary and it's a massive factor and you can really increase the trust when uh, you are 
capable of uh, living up to the expectation of implied promises that are not even always specific. So this can be done by creating processes and checklists and workflows and SOPs. So every time uh, your customers are getting the exact same results, every time the process is the same. Um, another advantage of following this idea um, of creating a process, which is a big part about Emeth book, but also my personal experience, but also what we teach is that uh, once you have a process that is replicable and perfected and people in your company are repeating this process and then something doesn't work, um, you can backwards engineer why something doesn't work because um, because most of the time something changed in the process or if you want to improve something for example you specifically want to improve your uh, closing rate between let's say um, on a sales call for example so every sales call should go with the same or similar script uh, with the same script obviously there is some personal touch to it but um, needs to go with the same set of things that you say, the same qualifications and so on. And then you add a new thing. So the customer tells you at the end of a call, hey, I don't want to buy this because um, I am going to be busy for the next two months because I'm actually going on massive holidays. And that's why uh, we have added to our process to ask people whether they have big holidays coming up. And that's what we deployed in every company uh, that um, I consult or I'm involved in. And uh, this helps uh, massively, but we wouldn't know that if every person that works on this process had a random process that we, we, we wouldn't know what actually changed and improved it. So actually making the process always the same and then changing one thing in the process uh, allows you to test whether this change is actually improving something in the business or not. So that's the second advantage. So you get more trust from customers. That was advantage number one. Advantage number two is you can improve things so that um, they work. And then finally, advantage number three, you can actually multiply yourself easier because you can't just multiply. You think you can multiply your business and hire people. You can't. You, you, you think you do, you cannot. If you cannot explain it, if you cannot processize it, and if somebody cannot be trained to replicate you, then you cannot replicate yourself. Uh, so this is why it's so important, uh, also in line with Emeth, um book, to be able to train people easily through those processes so that your company can actually grow by literally copy-pasting the things that already work and in the company so so this is uh, about emeth now now coming back to your question how does it refer to to this book i have no clue i can i can uh, tell you i have a <laughs> but, good uh, i have a good segue now to this because i think based on what you just said and i think it was really important what you how you explained emeth is the way i now see the connection there between those two books is that what's outlined in the EMF and what you just explained is the the first brick. Like the, the, these are the first bricks that you have to, you know, kind of develop those processes and SOPs so things are consistent. 
and because and then you outlined what are the kind of advantages of it being consistent and then i would say the big one you kind of haven't said and that's the segue to this book is that if you have a consistent process that someone follows then you can measure it and what it's the famous saying is that what gets measured get gets improved and then you could for example say um i think keith also has a really good quote that uh anyone who doesn't measure doesn't want to be held accountable and i think that's that's very true and then that's i guess we could segue here like you could now i say, really love this uh, quote so, so maybe really you can say what this. what makes measuring so important because i think you are a big big fan of also like measuring things and keeping track and and, and that's i think very much connects to what you said before right um okay i i love measuring I hate being measured, um, but I know that measuring performance helps people. And um, anybody that that we consult in the tribe who is actually measuring everything that they do, uh, just through the simple process of measuring what they are doing, uh, they are they tend to have better results because they, they 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 are just conscious. They're more can conscious of what is happening. So people tend to imagine that they are doing well or that they are doing badly. Um, maybe they didn't close a sale and they suddenly start feeling bad and they didn't sleep well and they suddenly start feeling like, like everything is shitty. But then um, they, you look at the trends of how their company is going and actually they calculate everything. And, and then they're like, okay, I just hired one more employee. So my expenses are higher. Therefore, I made less profit this month. However, there is a positive trend. There has been some investment done in a company to improve it, da, da, da. So really, um, they gain more consciousness when they just make those self-assessments um, for, uh, for, for, for what actually is happening and they are doing. So people who are um, not measuring and they say, let's say, even with businesses like sending proposals on Upwork, they're going to say something like, oh, yeah, I'm sending quite a lot of proposals. But then but then you ask people, okay, how many have you sent um, in the last week? They're like, yeah, about like, you know, 50 or something. They're like, all right, specifically, how many did you send on Monday? So basically, the, the more precisely you measure, even if you don't ask them, but even if they ask themselves, they get this consciousness that gets them closer to the reality because, um, because like you said, what gets measured gets done. I think the, the, the large part of this is that they are just conscious and they, they are just ashamed of themselves that, that, well, I'm not doing anything. Or they think that they are doing badly, but then they get this consciousness about reality of what is happening in, in their life or business. Uh, and, uh, and then they're like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, so, uh, that's one, that's the thing. Number one, then, uh, keeping people accountable, uh, and, and, you know, checking with them. I mean, that's, that's, that's just another thing. Cause, um, when people measure you, uh, you feel, you feel, you know, discomfort that mm. you're getting checked and measured and it's unpleasant. Uh, but like I said before, most of the times when you grow, you are supposed to feel unpleasant. You're supposed to feel pain. It's not supposed to feel good. So um, not having someone who keeps you accountable, I think it's a big mistake. 
Um, I do have people who keep me accountable. And, um, and I think I would not do as well without it because I literally feel, um, I literally feel ashamed to talk to people in my business circle uh, that, well, like this week I did nothing uh, or the revenue didn't grow. So I think there is this social pressure. Um, there, there is this shame uh, playing the role in accountability. There is this consciousness. Um, and obviously, um, another one is, uh, I mean, we took this to the whole new level with accountability uh, in, in, in the tribe with, um, with comparing revenue of people and getting them to compete against each other, which particularly taps on certain personality styles and their need to compete, particularly um, the aggressive, um, self-confident personalities. Mm. Um, self-confidence mostly so or consciousness um, so this is very interesting as well because this will work with certain personalities better but now what was the actual question Conrad because I think I started talking about accountability but I, I think no, I, 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 the, the question was like what what makes you know measuring so important and I guess like you you kind of answered it and and for me I can give my personal story that for me, it's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like some people, some personality styles, which like you, you like personality styles, have more tendency to, to kind of liking it and keeping track of things and, you know, building spreadsheet and all of that. And some, I kind of the opposite of that. I feel like I'm kind of the opposite of that. So my tendency is to not do those things and keep kind of things like more vague. Um, and business was like this very much kind of a really hard knock to the face when I realized that a lot about you know success in business is about like specificity and and measuring which are like very two things that I wasn't that maybe not that I wasn't a fan of but I was just not really it, it didn't come to me naturally it was like more vague and like to talk but in business business is such a really hard I know kind of uh, encounter with reality because like it's it's very like you say like if something works it means it's like it, it, it works <laughs> like if if you get sale if you have money on your account it's real like someone paid you for that so like the, the whole process must have worked if it if it hasn't worked it means that there's something wrong so you can't like make furies about like oh maybe it works maybe it doesn't like if you don't get cash that means maybe you know some part of it works but the whole chain doesn't um, and the same thing about sales call and, and each of those. And the only way you can kind of look at it without any bias is if you like kind of track and measure it properly, because then you don't have this like kind of just your, you don't rely on your like memory and your, on your own, you know, human uh, biases. Perception, right? Perception as, as we talked last, last week, right? Because we don't see the reality because we look through the lens of whatever mood, emotion whatever you know it's just not not a mental model right yeah like so you even the so most that was your definition of a mental model right like because we can't see the reality we just see through our perception which is as cute um right yeah yeah like that we are not you know 
we can be logical, but we are usually not. <laughs> That's kind mm-hmm. of how I would see. Like we have the ability to to be logical, but it's not. You know, most people have the tendency to be the opposite <laughs> of, of of logical. Um, and and being logical, it's not necessary. I would say like that it's better than being illogical. It's just like, for example, in business there is a lot of place to, to be logical and to measure things. And it's, it's really important. There's also some space, like for example, in marketing of your business, there is some space for irra- irrationality and, and trying out things that don't make sense. But a big part of this business, I would say even bigger one, and I think that's a bit different than some other areas of life, really is about that. But then if we look at those things, because we wanted to talk about a little bit of mental models, and with Victor, we talked about this is that the way you kind of learn mental models is that you kind of learn them and you just start seeing them in different, you know, things. You start seeing them in different areas, in different uh, cases, in different things. So, for example, the same thing outside applies when we're talking about measuring in business. The same thing applies to like workouts and gym, right? Like the only way you improve your lifts, the only way you get stronger, like like really like you, make, you increase every time right you yeah, measure you increase and, increase and you keep track of the workout so you know what happened what was the last time was the weight how many sets you did how many reps you did what uh you know what the weight should be this time like you can keep it vague but and it might you know you might improve slowly but it's not gonna take you you know the path is not gonna be as 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 uh easy and Kind of straight. And I had the same experience with uh, walking. So when we were in Moine, I, I started uh, working on my weight and losing weight and I started walking. And there was a time when I, when I started walking a little bit, then I, then I scheduled myself for five kilometers a day. Now I'm at um, five or 10, depends on the day, but I would never achieve this uh, without measuring specifically exactly how many kilometers I walked. Um, I use Apple Watch for this, which is the only useful function uh, of Apple Watch, <laughs> being honest, uh, but a very useful one. Is that the status symbol? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I particularly think that this is the opposite of uh like high status it's quite the opposite um i feel um these days but i wear it when i walk and um i think it's it's just you know measuring uh very well and i know okay that was five kilometers and uh, otherwise i never walk five kilometers if i don't measure it i'm sure measuring works when i measure when i take the checklist of the you know a checklist of things I need to do every day. Like there is a checklist. Um, I don't have physical checklist. I probably should. It probably would improve it. Mm. But I have, I have, I have a, I have a mental checklist of the things I need to do every day, which is five kilometer walk. Uh, which is um, well, there are a couple of things, so I can get to, to it a little bit later. But. Um, you know, making sure that I have this checklist in my mind uh, makes me makes me really sure that this is done. And then there is this other uh, other thing about the social pressure of accountability because my wife got into walking a lot, and whenever I don't walk, she would keep me accountable, and she would be like, "Hey, you didn't walk five kilometers. Uh, you're fat. I'm not gonna sleep with you." Um, <laughs> and um, 
well, um, I try to do the same when she doesn't do it. And then when there are more people in the, who, who, who are trying to, you know, keep each other accountable, I think this works even better. Um, so yeah, this definitely applies to, to, to sports and, and really everything, but I did cut you off Conrad. So you were, you were talking about something that I pivoted towards. Um, you were talking about gym and increasing weight every time, but there is one, th one thing I wanted to ask you, cause you said business is so, you know, numeric and so specific and it's so about specificity, but uh, what about this book that you talked about, uh, on the last podcast episode about the alchemy of business that more, most breakthroughs were, uh, created, um, through not logic, but somehow, uh, through some feelings was it you talking about this oh yeah yeah um yeah i mean it, it was not about business it was it's it's a book of it's called alchemy by rory sutherland so he's um yeah the chairman of ogilvy so he's just like mostly a, a marketing guy but i think he works in in something called now like creative agency mm -hmm. so basically i mean his whole idea is that and that's and that's why it's it's never so you know like black and white and we talked about it with victor yesterday that yeah like having mental models and being super logical yes it's it's good and he calls it logos so from like greek the logos so that's like the Log logic and then they have the mythos i think and and it's always goes in pairs so when it comes to rory um he basically talks a lot about um the fact that you just have to like there was some something called like alchemists in the in the past and they would just like mix around and play with different you know like substances and things and and, and a lot of times there would be nothing but sometimes it would be something you know something would come out of this and that and explodes it, on your face and yeah like it would explode and 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 you wouldn't and most of the time you wouldn't even know like why the things happen because they didn't have like the you know the chemistry we have now the understanding of mm -hmm. chemistry and mods but you know they had the end result so in a sense they didn't have to understand how it got there and that's how it's how it is with with many things because if we understand that we slowly discover things but there is so many things that we don't know how to do or there's a lot of things that somehow work or we we have them but we don't really understand fully how they work and that's how a lot of like discoveries like huge breakthroughs were made like they just kind of someone stumbled upon them and then it took them like the next 20 years to kind of try to understand and break it down like how specifically it works so that's like one hand on what he says. And on the other hand, it's, and that applies also to business very well, is that you can improve things objectively. And that's where most people focus on right now. And it's a big fallacy because everyone wants to be super logical. We, live, we also talked about it with Victor. Everyone like wants, like we are in the age of logic now. Like everyone, it, everything has to be like, fact reality there's no place for anything else but the truth is as much as you can improve things but like objective reality you can also improve them psychologically because we are not machines and we interpret things like we we talked about we have perception so a lot of times and and that's his big like kind of agenda now is that there are a lot of problems and you can solve now psychologically rather than like fact reality and they make as much difference or sometimes more 
than the the you know the kind of uh, you know the logical way. And he gives a lot of examples of how you can, uh, for example, you want to improve the journey from like Manchester to London by train. So logically, what you would want to do and what everyone tries to do is want to shorten the duration of the train. So you try to, you know, create a faster train, better train tracks. The problem is that we are at such a point in evolution that it's really hard for us to push that barrier. But what you could do instead of trying to shorten the duration, you could just make the journey more pleasant. And to our brains, it wouldn't be any different. Like you would say you could spend like one hundredth of the money that you would spend on improving the trains by like you know 10 kilometers per hour on just serving people free champagne on the train and people would fucking love the train ride you know and they would be like oh instead of three hours i want six hours you know so it, right. and it's just like one of many examples he gives of how you can and it mostly applies usually in business in marketing but not only but in general it's it's worth to keep in mind that yeah like why we are talking about like logical measures it's not the end or be all right um and yeah and that's how a lot of also i guess the good example would be a lot of those like things that blew up like instagram facebook twitter they're kind of more like psychological inventions and they were also not discovered like there was a lot of luck involved like they just stumbled upon something in our psychology that just triggers us to like really crave this and really get addicted to it but we don't really have still like now we are getting some explanation why it happens but at first there, there wasn't one like it was just like, oh it's, it's blew up like instagram got like i don't know like a, a couple million users in like a thing a, a month or so uh, and, and it's it doesn't seem to be like so uh, logical right like it's it, it was kind of a psychological finding um disguised in in in, in you know but is it, is, is it because so many people are trying to create or build something and statistically, uh, even though they are doing random things, statistically one out of a million just works and explodes and then we're going to be like, hey, this works and we're going to back logic, the reasoning behind why it works. And um, I, I, would say, I would say that's what happened after after Facebook, a lot of apps started, you know, understanding the concept of notifications and positive feedback loop and, you know, getting you addicted to it. And, um, you know, they kind of followed it, but, uh, you know, initially it was, it was just a luck and, um, and one of the millions of ideas around the world and, you know, particularly good circumstances. Uh, but, um, yeah. Uh, so that would be, you think, because just so many people are trying something or because, or it's not necessarily because of the data. So wouldn't you increase chances of making something um, successful by being purely logical? Because obviously they didn't, or I don't know, maybe they did, but I'm assuming they did not think of, let's say, Facebook as, a, as in of something that... Like <laughs> I will kind of backwards engineer psychology and gonna get all the people addicted to to feeling that feeling of connection with people through notifications, right? That's that's that probably was not uh, initial. I, I, um, I think they had this an idea and then 
it worked in some form and then they figure out they started figuring out why it works the same happened like i listened to interview with the instagram guy who who found who was the founder like at first their idea was there was like an app like a check-in app that you're at a restaurant and you post a photo from there and they had very small amount of they had investors but it never really got big it, the, the name was like burn something like the, the the app was called and uh and then what they did was they asked the people that were using it the small amount like 100 users like why they were using it and they told them that they only use it for the for the aspect of sharing photos they don't care about the check-in so they they decided to pivot and just make what is now an instagram just the purely you know um photo sharing aspect of it and and i think with facebook it's kind of like it, it clicked in some form and then they kind of you know slowly started uncovering like what makes the thing click and then they started like doubling down on the things that that make it work um but i figure to go to back to your question about like if it's just about like a lot of people you know being logical and they finally by chance they they discover it i think I think I, I, I agree more with the statement. I think Rory also has it that if something was to be solved logically, we would already have solved it. A problem now in the world because we have su such an advanced, you know, insights into like, you know, the, the logical ways and so many people working on things that most of the, like not all, but most big, you know, big, big part of the, the big kind of, problems of the world or, or things that we are looking for better solutions to can only be solved through some form of irrationality because in, in illogic because like if it was to be solved logically we would have already done it and i think that's that's where i now i would be on this kind of argument of like yeah you can you can improve things there but there's like two types of improvements, right? Like there's the improvement that is like very linear. So like, okay, I can improve it by 5%. But if you are talking like the breakthroughs that are like, you know, significant improvements, like, hey, we had horses and then we had cars, then these usually happen through the way of, uh, of kind of like alchemy, just like playing around with things. Like Uber, I think he gives really example of Uber. Like it was also like, totally random stuff like guy just watched like mission impossible and was like oh it would be cool if we made an app out of that for taxis and it, and the in the and in the end what what happens now is that the the reason that it got so, so successful is is purely psychological almost like why uber is so successful and he explains very well that it's the, the fact that that uh one is that you can see the path so you don't have to like get stressed when you see at home and you don't know when the taxi is gonna come for you you can time your 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 leave you know how much it's gonna cost like there's a lot of like aspects that are purely purely psychological <laughs> not logical <laughs> in the sense that hey it's cheaper or hey it takes less time actually a lot of it is about the stuff that is not like obvious to our minds like why it works so much <laughs> that's really 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 <laughs> interesting um okay so do you have anything else to add in regards to the book that is interesting before we get to mental models um i guess one 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 really good because keith is really a master of, of metaphors and and like really making complex things simple 
I really respect those type of people because it means they have a really big understanding of things. Um, he said like measuring time and thinking time are two highest forms of leverage. And I absolutely agree with that because you probably know it also from EMIF, like leverage is like the biggest key to business. Like it's all about like, yeah, you have to have a, a good function business, but it's all about like how much leverage you can apply. It's like a lot better to have uh, like you know, a million revenue with like, you know, five employees than two million with 50 employees. It means like you, 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 you apply the, the, the leverage a lot better. Right. And, and in his opinion, like measuring time. So like, it, you know, what you do with when it comes to measuring and thinking time, which we is, is mostly covered in his second book, which is basically like sitting down and asking yourself a question. But usually it only you are able to do it if you before measure, because then you have stuff to like ask about usually, right? Like, what can I do to improve the profits by 10% while keeping the expenses at the same time? Like you can only ask that question if you have the optics. Um, so I would say this is big key. I don't know if you have anything to add there. No, I think it's uh, really interesting. And I like the idea about those two highest, purest forms of spending your time, uh, the thinking time and measuring time. <laughs> um, now, uh, do, you, do you have any mental models that uh, caught your attention that you would want to start with today? Um, well, let me think. Um... Well, there is a mental model of leverage, I guess. We could talk about that. Let's talk about leverage. Let me just find it. Okay, I have it. Um, so let's give the, the definition according to Farnham Street. Most of the engineering marvels of the world were accomplished with applied leverage. as famously stated by Archimedes, give me a lever long enough and I shall move the world. With a small amount of input force, we can make a great output force through leverage. Understanding where we can apply this model to a human world can be a source of great success. And that's, I think, uh, in my opinion, that's like uh, the biggest sucks, like the biggest factor of sex, you know, success of uh, biggest success factor of most of the most successful businesses right now. Like they have they were able to, they are able to apply the biggest lever, like leverage, like all, all those, um, you know, huge multi-billion uh, businesses that operate on like very few employees, like, I don't know, maybe like Netflix or like Facebook and, and all the other ones, like they just insane amount of leverage, right? What's the leverage there? Is it scalability? And um, because you don't really need to produce that much more or like work so much more on it with like another thousand more customers. Is this the leverage in an example of Netflix? Um, so think about it. Uh, if Netflix gets 1 million extra users tomorrow, it's not that that much is going to change for Netflix in terms of internal operations. If I'm going to get 1 million customers tomorrow, there is going to be a massive change of how I can serve them. That, that, that's just impossible for me to incorporate that. Um, so that's the leverage, right? This ability to scale. Um, yeah, like scale up. Yeah, like exactly like scalability, like, um, because of great leverage you have a really 
great potential to scalability and the scalability now is the name of the game because like if you if your business is very scalable it has the most like potential like room for for growth in a sense right do you have any other ideas of what potential business leverages could be out there except scalability I mean, there must be a list of those online as well, just like for mental models, like potential leverages. It must be, it must be like a list of like 10 or 20 different leverages that you can just apply in your business, right? It sounds like uh, something worth uh, researching and putting our thoughts into maybe on another podcast as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like the way you could think of leverage is like, if you just break it down because it's like a very basic principle so it's basically just something that where you input a certain force or energy and then you the output is much greater so that that's basically anything like you know you could think of a lot of you know ways of marketing that give you for example a great leverage because for the you know for the resources needed it gives you more, like, I don't know, Facebook ads. Like if you uh, spend $500, but get one, you know, $10,000, it's leverage, right? Like in a sense, like you could mm-hmm. look at it as, as leverage too. If right. you um, look at email, like email doesn't cost anything, but produces, I don't know, it can produce like, I don't know, $2,000 for, for some marketing campaign or something. So it, it's a leverage like YouTube, you have, I don't know, 10,000 subscribers. I would call it a leverage. Like my friend has now like close to hundred thousand. It's a form of leverage because even though maybe you don't directly uh, maybe profit from that, like just if you, for example, are not running the YouTube ads or whatever, but this is like a form of leverage that you can use to, I don't know, get in the door with someone, get new relationships, get business opportunities. Like my friend is getting just randomly um, because he has this leverage where through this like platform he's he's now reaching like you know hundreds of thousands and millions of people um and he's just doing it solo so he has like huge leverage right and, mm-hmm. and so i mean you could just go on, on and on and on i think with those examples of like mm-hmm. no yeah that's very 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 interesting okay so let's look at the next mental model today i don't have them right here in front of me so let's look at your notes so um, I will let you pick mental models today. Um, okay, I think this one you is is the one you will have a lot to um, talk about. I, I think it's called incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, reciprocity. Yeah. No, reciprocity is different. Reciprocity okay. is when like you do something, someone need, feels like he needs to do back. Like incentives is like you know. The definition here is all creatures respond to incentives to keep themselves alive. This is basic insight of biology. Constant incentive will tend to cause the biological entity to have constant behavior to an extent. Humans are included. And particularly great examples of incentive-driven nature of biology. However, humans are complicated in their incentives can be hidden or intangible. The rule of life is to repeat what works and what has been rewarded. But, uh, but you can, I mean, incentives are, I think the way you could kind of look at them and I think go more in depth into them yourself is through the lens of business, how incentives are really, you know, a big key of great, uh, having great employees who work well. Um, 
I guess that that's where my mind is at, but maybe you have some other good like examples. So, so, so the incentive could be something as let's say, all right, you, Hey, can you increase my salary? And then you're like, all right, at the end, at the end of next month, when we make a monthly review, uh, we're going to talk about this. So you incentivize them to, um, to work better for, for the month until that meeting, right? Would that be an incentive? Is it as, as an, as, as an example of this? Yeah, but I think that, but, but that one is like very like, I would say basic, but there's like more like subtle ones, which I think are usually like the key and, and they are mm -hmm. hard, I think, to figure out, but I think figuring it out, I think in one of the books, I don't know if in, in E-Myth or maybe it was a different book that, but there was also a lot about, uh, about the incentives. Oh, I think that, yeah, because I think there is, um, I think there is like a second uh, mental model which is very much connected to that, uh, which is called a sec. And I think if you look at it through the lens of the second um, algorithms compounding, what was it called? No. Seizing the meal. Hmm. Oh, there is bias from incentives. <laughs> so what is bias from incentives? Hmm. Well, well, bias from incentive is highly re responsive to incentives. Humans have perhaps the most varied and hardest to understand set of incentives in the animal kingdom. This causes us to distort our thinking when it is in our own interest to do so. A wonderful example is a salesman truly believing that his products will improve the lives of the users. It's not merely convenient that he sells the product. The fact of his selling the product causes a very real bias in his own thinking. So that's like our... Okay, so, so, because, so incentive for him is to sell it because he makes money. So he has bias in thinking that this thing is really good. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, uh, but mm -hmm. no, go ahead. Go ahead. But then when you talk about incentives, then uh, what, what kind of other incentives are we talking about in this model? So is it incentives such as, all right, I'm going to get more power. I'm going to get more whatever in life or what kind of incentives are we talking about? Like what kind of incentives are we talking about in this model? Yeah. I was trying to find, I don't know when is it. But there was this kind of thing called, but maybe it was not a mental model, but there was this, this, this kind of, a, not a fallacy, but by the way, I think that's the best way to look at incentive is that, and that's how I, I th this was a breakthrough for me, is that when you look at it, that you as a business owner and an employee, right? So you as mm -hmm. a business owner, your kind of incentive is to maximize uh, your profits, right? So in, in a sense, your, your, your incentive is to pay your employees the least for them doing the most work while, you're, right. while, you're, while your employees is kind of the opposite. That's what they want. They want right. to work the least and earn the most. Right. So the, the key with, with, with getting the incentives right, and, and I don't remember, it was called like this, there's like this, 
the relationship between the employer and employee, there is a name for that, that there's this fallacy that one wants this thing and the one wants the opposite. So, so when you think about incentives where how they could, you know, become helpful for you, it's like, how can you think of a way you design to, where, mm -hmm. where the employee's, you know, incentives align with yours? So somehow rewarding in, in some form, it doesn't have to be money-wise, it could be somehow psychological or whatever, or, or structuring his bonuses or around in such a way that he will want to do something that will benefit your business. You know what I mean? Like, I know exactly for, what you for mean. For example, and, uh, giving him commission uh, on, 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 on sales. On sales. You know what I mean? And I was That's reading about this in Charlie Munger book that we talked about last week, poor Charlie Salmanak. Uh, he talked about this as well, that people always um, going to follow um, the system that you create, but they're going to follow the system to uh, always get the best things for themselves. So the way to benefit the companies to set incentives in a way that uh, people need to basically get the best things for themselves by getting the best things for the company. So this is how you should build systems. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not easy. That, that, that's the thing. Like it's, it's, we are talking about it, but it's like most people are not able to figure out, like, unless there's some pattern, like, for example, I, I recently realized that, that the whole industry of, of gastronomy. So like the, and the people like oh, waiters, Mm -hmm. like waiters they it's weird but everyone's replicating a system because it, it it was someone created a very good system where like the the waiters get very low wage but then they get the tips from from mm -hmm. people and if you think about it it's just it's like just someone had to have invented that because it's not it's not everywhere applied this way but in in in, mm -hmm. in restaurants and in bars it's everywhere it's not like one doesn't have it everyone has it right. because i think it's just a really good way of applying the incentives where it's like if if maybe it wouldn't be this way that everything would be shit like you know like the the waiters would right. not give a shit and and um and the businesses like the restaurants would go bankrupt like i, I don't know right. but i feel like th this is also like a good somehow a good structure of of how the incentives are aligned in some way at least that okay i, I think would... what what you say makes sense that more and more restaurants needed to apply this because uh they wouldn't survive and therefore just you know going with the psychology of or like sorry with the you know idea train of thought of evolution uh would be that all right uh, most of the restaurants just have tips and incentivized employees because well, those are the most of the restaurants that actually exist. Um, so and it makes I sense, right? This makes sense, yeah. Because like they are incentivized to to be good because they get like tips, like to be nice to to serve well. And your benefit as a you know business owner or restaurant is that you know people will come back, which is the whole point. Right. Like you want to get more, or they will recommend you. So like because the you know right. the the stuff was nice. So I think just somehow someone you know once i don't know when stumbled upon it and no one has figured out a better system and i think it's just a really good example of like you know where the incentives are aligned in in, in both ways and it's not ideal still because you know it's not like you always get the best customer service but it's 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 a good example i think right i worked very well when i was a waiter in a restaurant 
until they implemented the system of shared shared tips tips and uh, basically mm. the way it works is that all right when you get a tip there there is a box and we share it with all the team members and with the kitchen and then and then i thought well screw that i'm not gonna work you know like way harder than everyone else um and i felt really unfair because at the time i believed that you know the fact that I'm getting, you know, the highest tips or really high tips was because of my personality. <laughs> and I just believe that that's because not because of the food that people get, uh, but that's because how, you know, awesome I make them feel when they are in the restaurant. Um, I think incentives work better when they are less collective and more uh, personal. Mm. Um, that's just one more idea that comes to my head when we were talking about this, when you think of creating incentives for your business. Mm. No, that's, that's very well could be the case. Um, but one thing I wanted to connect to this, you said something about, uh, that it didn't feel fair and there is actually, as far as I know, a mental, mental model, model. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> fairness, something. Yeah, yeah, there, there is. Yeah. There is a mental model for everything. Yeah, like there's in the middle, bribery, scarcity, trust. Damn, why, why I can't find anything today? It's in, insane, man. But we can talk about this model. I, I'm gonna start. There's this model called uh, basically uh, unfairness, the feeling of unfairness that people are essentially not okay when something is unfair so they just gonna feel not okay when like for example and this was tested and i was part of this i was part of this research mm -hmm. um i was part of this research uh it was it was um studied oh. as well in uh, maastricht um in the southern netherlands and um during this research uh what we did is um we uh we got um to choose so there are two people they can't see the decision of another person but they get to choose they get to choose um whether one person gets to choose uh how to divide uh the money uh between uh those two people so they get certain amount of money and the important part of this experiment is that everybody get the actual money after so they actually get real money it's not you know just an idea how much money you're gonna get after the research so every subject that was tested uh received uh, money after the experiment so basically uh what happened is uh, people were um, essentially getting the real money right after the experiment so what happened was that um, one person uh, in front of a computer is picking uh, how to divide the money between the two people. Another person is random. They don't know exactly who it's going to be. They can't communicate and agree to it first. They don't know what the experiment is going to be exactly about. So what happens is that this person says, all right, here is, so, so, so they get to choose. They get, uh, let's say, 20, 20 euros. And from this 20 euros, uh, what happens is uh, they get uh, to decide how they divide money. So most of the people would uh, naturally uh, decide, all right, so I get, let's say 19 and the other person gets one euro, right? 
So then what, they, uh, what happens after is the person that they can't see in another room on the computer gets the offer. And the offer is always the same. Um, you can either agree and you get um, money in a way that the other person divided this, or uh, you disagree and nobody gets any money whatsoever. So what happened in this experiment as a result is that when person gets to choose and they get to choose um, 19 euros for me and one, euros for, one euro for another person, um, even though you would be getting one euro, um, you, you reject the offer and nobody gets the money because they feel unfair that the other person is just, you know, you know, getting 19 and I'm getting one. Well, screw you. Then nobody gets any money. And even uh, similarly with uh, closer sums to, to the middle. So, so you know, obviously the, the more fair it is when it's, you know, 15, 14, 13 to let's say seven, obviously um, uh, we would get the higher ratio of uh, people accepting that, all right, I guess I can walk away from this experiment with, you know, eight euros and uh, you get 12. But oftentimes those choices were rational, especially when the amount was more unfair. So very often when somebody would pick, all right, you get, you get six and I get 14, people would click, I reject the offer and nobody gets any money. So logically speaking, it would be better for you to get the stupid six for the time you've invested to come for this experiment than, than get nothing. Um, but that's how, um, you know, one example, that, that's one example of measuring it. So people basically um, tend to feel that something is unfair and they, they feel the unfairness. Um, but I'm, I, I will welcome you, Conrad, to, to read the description of this uh, mental model. Uh, since you yeah, I found it. found it. But yeah, that was perfect, perfect, um, perfect, thank, perfect example that basically shows that there is just something innate in us that kind of you know, makes us keep track of, of, of if something's fair or not like we have like this compass or however you want to call it um, but just reading it is so justice runs deep in our veins in other illustration of our relative sense of well-being we are careful arbiters of what is of what is fair violations of fairness can be considered grounds for reciprocal action or at least distrust yet fairness itself seems to be a moving target what is seen as fair and just in one time and place may not be in another. Consider that slavery has been seen as perfectly natural and perfectly unnatural in altering phases of human existence. Wow, that's, uh, those examples are hardcore and also very well picturing it. And on this note, I would um, finish today's episode and next week we can go through the next mental models. So we still have quite a few to go. So uh, thank you guys for tuning in and uh, we're gonna see you next week. Um, thanks for watching. See thank you. you. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to the Business Banter Podcast. 
If your immediate reaction after listening to this episode is either, fuck, that was some great advice, can't wait for more, where do I sign up? Or, man, I had the same idea in mind, but I assumed it's just me being weird. Thank you for sharing. Or, this bastard hurt my feelings, offended my delicate soul, and should be banned from the internet. Then, it means we're on the right track, doing God's work. In that case, please like, subscribe, and do whatever is allowed by technology to support this show. Make sure to also bookmark the podcast page, business-banter.com. If you'd like to voice your opinion, ask a question, or just want to connect, shoot us an email at conrad at killercoldemail.com. Until next time, my friend, stay vigilant.